Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. On today's podcast, I sit with Dr. Biko Mandela-Gray and Dr. Ryan J. Johnson, co-authors of The Phenomenology of Black Spirit, published by Edinburgh University Press. In this interview, you will learn why Dr. Thomas J. Curry says, thinking about Blackness historically as a manifestation of the deliberate self-conscious efforts of Black people is not only a worthwhile project, but a necessary philosophical and conceptual grounding of Black theory and thought. Phenomenology of Black spirit is a commendable effort towards establishing a groundwork for the study of Black spirit as a revelation of time and civilization, end quote. So we got to learn why Dr. Curry said that. And so to begin the conversation, let me welcome our brothers here to the conversation. Doctors Gray and Johnson, how y'all doing? I'm doing good, it's good to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Of course, I saw y'all smiling, we, we all Zoom, everybody who don't know. And so when I was reading uh, Brother Curry's words, I, I know they were smiling over there too. So it's good to hear some some adulation here on a Friday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Amen. So uh, to get us started here today, uh, please give us the origin story of the phenomenology of black spirit. You want to go? Go ahead, go. Uh, yeah, sure. I'll start. I'll just say a few things. So there was a conference that our lovely, weird friend, uh, this little philosopher of religion, Dustin Ellis, and I put on on what does what do philosophers mean when they say the word God? And uh, at this conference, um, Biko was presenting, and I remember being down the table from him and seeing seeing Beaker present on you know, correct me wrong, the Tony Morrison, Levinas, and the uh white voyeurism of black suffering. And I was being being floored by that and having one thought just continually hap that occur in my mind during the rest of his twenty thirty minutes talking. And it was I wanna think with Beaker. And it became louder just as the day went on, as the paper went on. Such so that later that night at the bar, after a little refreshments, I posed the question. I get this idea about a book on Hegel and Black Thought. Do you want to write this with me? At first, it was the tentative. Well, I'll leave it to you there. I'll leave it to you there. Where you want to say what your response was? Yeah, I, I mean, I'll remember this. Um, the only thing I'll add is, is we were. We so we were both sort of we ended up being on the same plane actually to this conference right so it was interesting and so we you know kind of noticed each other before um, and then recognized oh we're doing the same thing uh, we're headed to the same place and so we ended up having this conversation and yeah I presented a paper on you know continental philosophy and Tony Morrison and 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 yeah all of that and Ryan presented a paper on I'm gonna mispronounce this word theophagy I think or in other words eating God. Um, and so uh, he had a he had someone do a performance art piece of eating pancakes with 
I'm across sort of uh, in the middle, like etched in the middle of the pancakes is a way of articulating this. And so I say, this is, this is incredibly compelling. Usually when I read philosophy and engage with philosophers, like philosophers straight up, I'm a philosopher of religion. We're kind of the weirdos like in, in this world of philosophy. And so usually when I, when we engage, I, I hadn't met someone who was, who was interested in doing things differently. And so I bring all of this up to say, yeah, after, after we present that day, we're at, um, we're at drinks and, you know, having refreshments and Ryan kind of sheepishly comes by, I got this idea. It's on Hegel and black thought. And I think to myself and I say, I don't know Hegel that well, but I need to know Hegel and this person is interesting. And so I, I, I'd said, okay, you know, let me think about it, but yeah, I'm kind of into it. And then uh, Ryan asked me to come and give a lecture at Elon, and we spent the entire weekend reading Hegel together. And I think at that point, that's when the project solidified in my head as not simply something I wanted to do, because I had already committed at that point, but something that was worth doing. Let's tarry here for a second. You said that you came in for a talk at Elon, and then it suddenly became a longer weekend of y'all just reading Hegel together. Did I get that right? No, no. We had a weekend. We had a weekend where we were at a conference together. Oh, right, right. Oh, okay. Gotcha. 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 I was invited. <laughs> it can get invited later. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, but that's, that's really interesting. Like that is really interesting how, and also it goes to why conferences are so important uh, because not only phenomenology of black spirit being a, a product of, of, of a conference, but also just thinking uh, about how ideas develop over time. Uh, because you, you said that you were not, um, you know, you didn't know Hegel well. Um, so you went from not knowing Hegel well to phenomenology of black spirit. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think at the end of the day, and, and I will never, I still won't say that I'm a Hegel scholar, right? I, that I'm not, I, I'll be clear about that. I know him now much better than I did before. But my reading of Hegel is, is quite frankly, it is, um, it is influenced and refracted through black studies. And so there's a particular way in which, and, and Ryan remembers these conversations. I was questioning the dialectic all the way down. Every time we had a conversation with each other, is this, you know, this is raising questions about justifying suffering. This is raising questions about certain logics, all these particular things. And I remember us continuing, I like that you used the word tarry. We were tarrying with each other in this space of like thinking together um, and making sense of, you know, one of the smartest people in, you know, the, the canonical figures of Western philosophy, but also thinking about that smart figure in relation to six other incredibly brilliant figures as well, and, and recognizing that there are both tensions and overlaps in those in where Hegel's thought is and where these black thinkers are engaging and making sense of their own lives. So yes, it, was, it, it has been collaborative all the way through, and conferences open up those possibilities. And, and with that said, too, I'm interested to know more about the the collaborative process here. So um, co-authoring a text is tough. Shit, I'm trying to do a dissertation. This shit hard as hell. Hell ain't hard, but it could be. And so, uh, so, so you know, co-authoring a text is tough, uh, yet also a very uh, rewarding opportunity to, to produce some new work. 
Um, so I'm interested here. How did y'all blend each other's writing styles, arguments, and perspectives? Because y'all are going from I don't know you at a conference to phenomenology of black spirit. I, I want to know what happened in between in the sense of like challenges and when it started in terms of years and and yeah. So so I'm interested to know about that process for y'all. And uh, uh, Biko, you want to start off? I'm laughing because I'm laughing because yeah, it wasn't, it was, it was a joy to do, but it wasn't, it wasn't, um, for me intellectually, if that was the hard part, I, I, that's what I would say is the difficult, the hardest part for me was I'm reading Hegel and I'm disagreeing with him at every turn and Ryan and I are making sense of, of my disagreements and my frustrations. Um, also I would, I mean, I, I, and Ryan, you can hop in whenever, like, cause this is where things, but I will say part of what made this book, I mean, in the, any collaborative work is going to have its challenges, right? But part of what made this particular, uh, book less difficult to write, like when, like when we're actually sitting down to do it is both of us appreciated the other person's style of writing, I think. And so it wasn't, so when I heard Ryan give this paper at this conference, it wasn't let me lay out this argument for you. Step one, logical conclusion. Step two, if if that would have been his writing, I think I would have been like, you got it, fam. I'll give you, but it wasn't that, right? There was a performative element to it that I thought was absolutely crucial for the work of writing. And so hearing him, hearing his writing um, allowed for me to say, okay, th this is someone who appreciates words. And so that is crucial for, for me if I'm gonna co-write something with someone um, I think I think the other piece too, if you want to talk about temporality or time, I believe we started working on this. We got Ryan and I met each other spring of 2018. We began we began working on this sort of in an encode way, probably fall of 2018. After I came to Elon, it took us four years. It, it in in large part because. And I'll, I own this in large part because I was getting held up by a whole bunch of different things. And then by the time 2020 came around, I think I was writing my, I was also writing my own monograph for tenure. And so, um, but then 2020 came around and George Floyd was killed. And I think I either texted you, Ryan, or said something like, I don't have it in me right now. You know, I just don't have it in me to, even though this work is important, I don't have it in me at this moment to really sit here and do this kind of sort of philosophical work. And Ryan was gracious and said, look, like, yeah, I, I can appreciate that. And so there was a lot of patience and there was a lot of going back and forth. Um, but, but ultimately it, it, the work was, the work wasn't difficult because I think both of us wanted to have grace with each other, um, wanted to have patience, Ryan, I'm rambling at this point. So I'd love to hear what you're thinking. No, you're not rambling at all. Um, I remember that conversation because it was, we texted, then we talked on the phone and this is months into the pandemic and all these major uh, killings and, and also just our own personal things are going on at that time. And I remember saying, you even saying like, you know, if you need to go with this, go with this. And I was like, no, nah. like, no, it's just, this is, this is our thing. I remember thinking if, it doesn't even turn into the book. That's fine. Like this, the relationship that getting to know Biko in this way, this odd way, you, you don't know anyone else. Right? There's a, um, my wife doesn't know me in that way. Right? Like my parents don't. So there's that odd, there's an intimacy there. If it never turns into a book, 
that being fine. I remember saying that and thinking like, oh, is that true? And I felt, yeah, that's totally true. All right. So that's allowed, um, allowed it to become what it became. And I think and hope the grace that you, Bigo mentioned is throughout it. Um, so one other thing about the collaborative nature, and it's because we both have collaborated a lot with other people as well. So we ourselves wrote a book, our separate chapter, there was a festschrift for George Yancey, in which we co-wrote together, uh, since we both admire and have learned so much from, from George. We wrote that together. There was a sketching a bit, what then became the the book. And that worked really well. And I remember remember, you know, writing something and sending it to Biko, then Biko writing something and taking it in ways that I could not have imagined. And every single time, I think Biko would say like, oh, I'm not sure you like this. I don't you know. I'm not sure like that. But I was like, and every time I was floored, I just, I was so grateful and so excited. I remember several times like standing up while reading it and running to the room and telling my wife, this is, so there's that kind of trust and admiration that, that happened that made it really, really easy to to write together. I think I don't think actually I don't think I can't remember once you correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't think once was there any disagreement or any any decision that was even a question. It was like, yeah, that's totally that's hundred percent the right decision. There was there was no in the writing of the thing, there was absolute once we once we had thought things through and began like seeing each other's words. That's what made the writing process actually pretty easy was that that by the time we both so Ryan would send me drafts of things and I would read it and I would say, you know, it there, you know, Douglas, for example. And I'm reading and I'm reading Ryan's sort of reading of Frederick Douglass and making and I'm saying to myself, Oh, you know, he's done his homework. I don't have to worry about, right, like correcting certain things, right? And so what would happen in conversation or what would happen in the drafting process is that if we were editing each other's work, it was more stylistic or structural than anything else, right? There was no beef. There was no, it, the, because that had, whatever questions I might've had about Hegel, we had, we had tarried with that already. We had thought those things. And there would be times that I would call him even in the middle of this thing and say, look, I'm rereading this particular section. What are you thinking about this? And he would say, here are my thoughts and those things, which, so I say this to say the writing of the thing wasn't difficult because we were in constant conversation with each other on the conceptual tip. Um, it made, it made, it made the work, it made the work joyous to, it made the work a, a joy, even in the midst of like super difficult times. Um, so yeah, that's what, that's what I would, I, that's how I think about the collab. I don't look back on this collaborative. I don't look back on this book and be like, well, you know, it's not that kind of like thing. I don't look back and like, well, you know, we we made a bad, you know, I, I mean, I guess. It's not <laughs> the thing. It, it's much more like I formed a relationship with somebody through this process of writing and I learned a lot about someone that I needed to know, um, particularly Hegel. I needed to know more about him and I learned, but I was able to do that in collaboration. And for me, collaboration or sociality is you know, the hallmark of black study, you know, the product of the product of, of black study, you know, those books, sure, you know, we do that, but, but sociality is the hallmark of black study, something done in what Fred Moten calls, um, in, in, and as the common project. And that's, that's the gift that I was given in, uh, in writing this and co-writing this book. Like I said, two, two little things, but just one is that, that 
in addition to the sociality or maybe in the heart of it is that need to know. And just as Ika felt that need to know, I felt need to know about all these, this black tradition, which I hadn't written for a while, but this became an opportunity to really take it on and, and love it and become some part of it in that way. So that I felt that need as well. So we both have this shared need in which we need each other. Right. Um, and just something that I think is always, <laughs> we keep saying this and no one else is saying this, but as far as we know, this is the first philosophy book ever written by a white philosopher and a black philosopher in a single voice. The first, and it's 2020, it, it was published last year. Like I, I find that to be incredibly both, oh great, we've made an intervention, but also like I also find that to be incredibly damning to the field of philosophy in general. That, that that white philosophers cannot find spaces to collaborate intimately with black thinkers at that. And I'm not saying they, I, to our knowledge is what I will say, right? To our knowledge, maybe that's happening and we and we haven't seen it yet. I hope it is. Well, if anyone uh, that's listening to this podcast in 2023 or 24 or later, uh, you know, if you have any thoughts, then let us know if, if there's uh, anybody else, but let, the claim is the claim. Um, and also, um, I think it's, uh, opportune time as well as, as you both, uh, speak about the collaborative process of, uh, of the book. Let's take a step back. Um, cause I know not everybody might know, uh, what phenomenology, uh, is in general, but especially maybe in this case, the phenomenology of black spirit. Uh, so, so can you both do, can y'all do both of those things here? Let us know, uh, real quick. Uh, whoever wants to take this, I ain't gonna choose y'all. I'm, I'm gonna let y'all choose amongst yourselves. Uh, about uh, how would you define uh, phenomenology? And then also, um, for for anyone, what is the phenomenology of black spirit? No, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask Vico to say phenomenology because although I'm the philosopher, I think Vico's done far more phenomenology than me. So this is interesting. Reading Hegel, right? So Hegel has this text that's called the you know phenomenology of spirit. Um, I was trained, uh, my introduction to philosophy was through a, 20, a 20th century movement called phenomenology. And so it, it, this 20th century movement, I'll try to be brief here just for the sake of time. This 20th century movement turned to descriptions of experience to try to understand the conditions of possibility and like knowledge, right? So I'm being very, very sort of basic here, but like, you know, this guy named Edmund Husserl would look at, you know, a chair and ask, well, how do we come to understand this chair as a chair, right? You look at it from different perspectives and all of those things, but there's also ideas and words, and there's also a life world that's connected to that. So how do we come to understand this chair as a chair? There's a whole bunch of different conditions that he was trying to sort of figure out. I'm going to keep, I'm keeping that brief, right? Because that's the phenomenology I know. So I started reading Hegel, who has this other book, and, and as I understand Hegel's phenomenology, and here's where Ryan can hop in, as I understand Hegel's phenomenology, it is too a kind of description, but it is a description of the development of consciousness or spirit as people understand it through this logical movement called dialectical, like dialectics more or less. And so, yeah, you can find dialectics in Husserl, you can find a little bit of that in, in Heidegger, but Hegel is the guy who kind of, you know, at least in, in recent history, popularized this sort of like this, this, this ability to think in dynamic ways with opposites, right? I'm being very basic here because we can go, but this is, 
in dynamic ways with opposites. This is why, quite frankly, I think folks like King and Malcolm X and even Angela Davis are thinking dialectically because these are the possibilities, because Hegel has opened a dynamic philosophical space for people um, to make sense of life. Life not as a set of static objects as Husserl might think about things, right? Chairs that are sort of stuck there or subjects that are more or less um, uh, alter egos, other versions of yourself. Hegel thinks of life as a dynamic process constituted by negation and opposites and, and movement and struggle and all of intentions, right? And so the phenomenology of black spirit sees this, and this is where, right, I'm definitely gonna ask you to hop in here because I don't know if we ever gave a succinct definition of it in large part because we wanted to see it unfold. We wanted to sort of see a certain, so I don't know if we have a description, but I would hazard a definition of something like this, the phenomenology of black spirit describes the processes by which black life moves in and through the crucible of social death right like that it like like we have to consider that black life is as christina sharp has said all too often like constituted in and through and by the wake of slavery so so how does one think about the movement of black sentient existence how does one make sense of that well you turn to people who, who, some of whom are no longer with us and some of whom like Angela Davis are still with us, who make that, that dialectical relationship between life and death explicit. And what strategies do they expose in the process? Frederick Douglass is beating the shit out of his, his, his slave breaker, but that ain't, that ain't Harriet Jacobs' strategy. She got other options or she doesn't have other options, so she uses other means, right? So, so how, do, how does one think in this dialectic crucible of death, but still cling to life. What is operative? What, what can, how can we make sense of that? And Hegel offers, whether we like it or not, both possibilities for thinking through that and also limit, he also is exposed for his own limitations in thinking through that as well. Um, so I would say that, that, I'll stop there because I'm getting rambly, but that's, but Ryan, go ahead and hop in, yeah. Uh, it's not rambly at all, it's perfectly and beautifully said. Better than I could, for sure. Um, the I'll just add two things. One, uh, and this gets back to what we were just saying about the need and the rereading of the history of thought, the history of modernity, is that in talking with Biko, and especially with, in reading Fred Moten, came to understand how blackness is that constitutive, disruptive part of modernity. Right, And I came to really think about this whole training in modern philosophy that I had, um, that, that was absent. <laughs> that wasn't, wasn't there. Uh, and so I started to change and adapt in all sorts of ways. Uh, and, uh, and I saw that in Hegel too. So in Hegel's phenomenology and that unfolding in the dialectical history, of course that's present. And what's interesting about Hegel is at his attention to the exclusion, attention to the negated and to the othering and in all the complicated ways. So Hegel's often thinker of negativity, but negativity is so polymorphous, right? It's so multi-shaped and so, I guess as Vigo saying, dynamic and alive. And so if you're gonna think about how do we tend to that thing that most constitutes and disrupts modernity for identifying as blackness, then Hegel's going to be a thinker that does that from the inside, while tending to the, the outside, or maybe the, that the outside this inside, or the exteriority or interior, whatever 
however you want to um, characterize that kind of thing. The only other thing is that title, phenomenology of Black Spirit, as Biko was saying, is it's a different kind of phenomenology than the tradition that happened in the 20th century that um, traced back to, to Israel and Heidegger and those men, those people, those men, uh, mostly, is that it's a bit, it's an unusual thing in in Hegel, and, and Biko said it well. So I'll just say this, which is our entire book only occurs in 40 pages of Hegel's phenomenology. It's a much bigger book, right? It's 300 pages or something like that, depending on translation. So there's a bit of a misnomer in calling it the you know, phenomenology of Black Spirit when really talking about this small little thing. But the two, the main reason I think that I'm totally comfortable doing that is that this is a very circumscribed intervention that required years of thinking together, thinking with and against Hegel, following that need to know that we mentioned, and I see it as an invitation to others if they want to take this up. And so we conclude the book with saying, hey, this is what we think might occur in the next moment. So it's only a very small part. It's an invitation coming out of a very real relation. Can I add just one more thing real quick here too? One of the things that got me into this project, and it's the central question that's on the back of the book, um, is when you read, so these 40 pages on on um, self-consciousness, I think that's the title of the section, um, these 40 pages, you know, some master-slave dialectic, right? If you notice, <clears throat> and, and, and Ryan showed this to me a couple of times because it, it struck me, the, in the master-slave dialectic, like, the master's kind of there at the end of that, but, like, not in the same way. It's really the slave who's, like, the slave as a, as a logical position who develops further. And so one of the things that we were we wanted to do was to to ask, what if the, the protagonist, in this case, the position of the slave, was actually the enslaved, like the, like the black, like was actually black. And, and this is this is part of what makes the phenomenology of black spirit, the phenomenology of black spirit is because we take it, we, we ground some of this in this very real sense of what Ryan said, which is that blackness is constitutive and particularly the transatlantic uh, slave trade is is constitutive of modernity. And if Hegel is one of the folks who is a quintessential thinker in and of modernity, even as he's doing these interesting things, um, the blackness has to be at the heart of his thought too. So how do we how do we play how do we how do we play in that space that he that he doesn't seem to acknowledge, but is nevertheless sort of there, right? That that's what that that's also part of it. Yeah, and and that's how you start really the. I think it's either the that must be how you actually started the first chapter is to actually break it down to understand what what world it is Hegel's thought developed within. You know um what is happening haiti and, and, and such as well so that was definitely something that i definitely kept my eye on and and i, I write about enslaved folks uh specifically in the 18th century so uh it's it i'm i was also paying very keen attention uh for myself uh just thinking about you know the even just the concept of what it like when people use the term African-American for like people in the 18th century, it doesn't actually mean anything because in reality, that archetype as, um, as folks, uh, culture historians talk about, that's really a post-slave trade, 19, early 19th century 
uh, uh, process there. And so it also makes me think about as well about, um, you know, how does how does the master slave dialectic also work? Like more so, how does it apply to experiences of people who we don't have their own written records? Like, for instance, when I read a plantation uh, a ledger, then all I have is what the enslaver says about what this enslaved person did. How can I, how can I use effectively the 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 frameworks that y'all are bringing up, especially in that master slave in the dialectic with some um, Douglas and, and Jacobs? How do I apply that to their particular experiences? So that's something that I'm, you know, we're talking about tearing, tearing with in, in my mind as well. And actually leads me to my next question, actually. Why did y'all use, and like I said, this is a, this is an invested question for me um, as a, as a scholar of enslaved folks, enslaving more broadly. Why did y'all actually choose Douglas and Jacobs to tarry with here? Uh, for 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 this first chapter, because you could have used other folks, right? Douglas. Now, obviously, Jacobs and Douglas are the most well-known slave uh, slave narrators, uh, but they're certainly not the only, um, even of their own generation. So, uh, so so take us into your um, mm -hmm. rationale for choosing both of those uh, folks: uh, Harry Jacobs in North Carolina and Douglas up in, um, and was it uh, Talbot, in Talbot County? Uh, I'll start, because and please um, jump in. The, one of the reasons is the circumstances in which the idea started to formulate in my mind. And it was a reading group that my department at Elon started um, as we increasingly started to bring race into all of our classes. And as we're doing that, we're thinking about, we've actually never hired a permanent philosopher of color in our in our department so this is a problem right so we were thinking what do we need to do to change the nature and structure of our department to do that to just, or just bringing in a person of color to the white space oh problems there so we started to have a reading group in which we were reading some major moments in the history of black thought and so we read Douglas's narrative uh booker t washington's up from slavery and then uh, as well as a black folk. So we started to do this uh, uh, and some IDD Wells. And as we were doing this, I started to see how similar the logics, lived logics in these narratives or, or accounts were to Hegel. And I was like, this is really weird. And that's when I started to imagine the idea. So it was reading these black thinkers that started to formulate a kind of trajectory. And this really became the foundation of figures. And then that's why Matt Biko shortly after that, we started talking about it. And then we concluded with the other three major male thinkers. Um, we, we worked those together. Uh, so it was primarily our thinkers that brought us to the book. <laughs> That's a, a kind of autobiotic reason, but there's a kind of internal logic reason too. Um, and that one is the way in which Douglas's narrative sets the standard of the mold for those accounts of the slave narratives um, uh, in the problematic way that you were talking about, Adam, like the way in which it's, what is the audience and what are the expectations and what is hidden and what is unsaid and all those things. So that primary and a, and a, a prominent role of, of those two, for example. Uh, then Biko introduced me to Jacobs. I actually didn't know Jacobs at all. And 
as we as I read Jacobs, I started to think about all these fascinating ways in which it worked really well in the dialectic that we're setting up. Because just to, I'll just name this thing. I'll I'll throw it to you, Nico. Which is there's multiple dialectics happening at the same time. There's just really rudimentally. There's Hegel himself, right? There's Hegel and the history of black thought, and there's those thinkers within black thought and black history itself. And then there's these gender dialectics that are also happening at the same time. So they seem to all capture something about the momentousness or the dynamism of, of those dialectics that we saw happening in that first chapter. The only thing I'll add here, I think, is that for, particularly for Douglas, and then I'll speak about Jacobs, Douglas, I'm, I can't remember who wrote who wrote. It might have been Lewis Gordon, but I could don't don't. I guess we're being quoted because we're being recorded. But but my point here is is um, there are moments when you read, particularly the first autobiography, that Douglas seems to be self consciously like doing dialectical work, right? So, and what I mean by that is 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 that there is a way that his fight with Covey feels it it carries the weightiness of a master slave dialectic, and that. And in, and this is in and because well I'll frame, I'll frame it this way, at least as as we were thinking through it, it, the transition like when he beats Covey, he's not freed in that moment, but he is transformed, right? And so and so this is sort of this one of these interesting moments that sort of operative. And so I think there's a particular dimension, at least for me, uh, adding to what Ryan had just pointed out autobiog autobiographically for for him. There's a there's a dimension of Douglas that I, there are times where I think he's you know clear he's doing something with dialectical thinking, um, <clears throat> at least in the first in the first autobiography the first narrative. With Jacobs, I will be honest with you, I was absolutely drawn to two scenes, um, particularly one this this. There's this moment early in the narrative, and I'll try to keep this brief. There's this moment early in the narrative where, um, you know, and I don't know if this is if this is Lydia Marie Child or if this is Jacobs herself, but there's this moment early in the narrative. You know, she makes this decision to go to go get pregnant by this other white guy. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? But there's this moment right before she starts telling us that that goes down that she's incredibly apologetic. Like, I'm so sorry. You know that I that I forgive me, dear reader, for being more uh, more or less morally unscrupulous, right? And I kept thinking about this, and I kept thinking about oh, her strategies are different. It bothered me that she was so apologetic for sure, but I'm a 21st century thinker. That makes sense. Um, but what I was what struck me in that moment was she was developing a completely different way of finding out who and what she was and how valuable whether materially in terms of a little bit on a little bit economy, whatever, how valuable she was to Dr. Flint. And this is a different transformation of consciousness that, that, that speaks to a transition toward what we will eventually talk about in terms of stoicism in the next chapter, Douglas. And, and so in short, Douglas fights his way to this, this self-consciousness, right? This transformation of consciousness, it's not available for Jacobs. And so Jacobs develops two other strategies. One, subverting the master's sexual desires and then two what i say or what we say is hiding her way out in that crawl space for those years and both of these things i think demonstrate not necessarily like widespread like i won't say that these are covering figures for all because you're right there are multiple enslaved now you've got you know box brown all these folks but i just suggest that these are two these are two ways in terms of thinking through how black spirit moves 
these are two ways that that we found to be incredibly compelling. I know we are close to time, so. Oh no 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 we 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 got a little extra time. It's all good. Because also at this point, uh, the, the the rationale takes me to your conclusion, where you mentioned this doesn't have to be the end, right? Then in 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 effect that you're using um you're using each thinker writer for each chapter as a as a way to let folks know in Hegel studies and philosophy and Black studies. It can be done, and you can apply this framework into thinking and understanding a Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman, who, you know, do not physically write their own. It's it's a dictated narrative, but it's an autobiography nevertheless. Or instead of an Ida B. Wells, you know, you have, um, you know, you have a uh, uh, Francis Ellen uh, uh, Harper uh, Watkins, and so you know, you have a lot of different um folks that you can you know use <clears throat> and and so so in a way like I, I see it as after hearing your uh answer to my question pretty much like a blueprint in in, in a way uh which which I think is also like the best books like that that this is just like uh David Blight just wrote that um he cited uh, the the newest biography of Douglas but there's always going to be another biography of Douglas because everybody's different. Like there was literally just, um, I just downloaded on, on audible, uh, this big old, uh, uh, um, biography of, of King. Um, you know, I think a King of life or something like that, which I need to get more creative, man. King of life, man. Like, I know your book is like 9,000 pages, but come on, man. It'd be a little more creative. At least Blake got a, got a more creative title. Uh, <laughs> Like this is support a personal privilege. I, I just I don't know. Patty, no, I would no, I would say um I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate this this deeply. First off, the the idea that we are offering a blueprint. I think I'll I'll speak for myself here. I I didn't even know. I think I was just invested in this this collaborative project with with Ryan to figure something out and to know that there's a blueprint. That is wonderful. I'll also tell you too. I, um, my next project is on Sojourner Truth, and so I'm, okay, yeah. So I'm thinking about how to think philosophically. I only bring that up not to like say something personal or to plug, but I think you're. I think Ryan in writing co-writing this book, Ryan taught me that we could take historical figures, and I'm putting that in scare quotes, and recognize them as providing something incredibly instructive for theory, not simply as materials from which we theorize, but as theorists themselves. And so I think, I think for me, that has been the gift of, of working on this particular project. And, and the blueprint is there. It is an invitation. We do not think that we have written the once of once all and, and be all phenomenology of black spirit. I'm sure um, Calvin Warren will have a completely different conception of phenomenology of black spirit because he, he is one who invokes the phrase. So there are other folks who are going to do something different. And we look forward to seeing those options but we wanted to open some kind of like conversation and more specifically a conversation um, in philosophy. Uh, I, I, I would, I remember when I first met Ryan, I, I said, you know, look like, you know, like you're a real philosopher. Like I, I'm a philosopher of religion. Like I'm trained off to, and, and Ryan was like, I don't believe in that, you know? And so that, and so, and so that, but my own fear and my own concern 
exposes the myopia of the larger philosophical field. And I think part of the my motivation for writing, for co-writing this book with Ryan was not to prove to anybody that I'm a philosopher, but to demonstrate that much of what you, much of what philosophy does is constituted in and through my people. Um, so that's one thing that I was sort of interested in. Yeah. It's funny. I, I said earlier, like I'm the philosopher, but I have the philosophical training, but I'm not really like the, the discipline, discipline is, I'm not sure what the discipline thinks of me. And I was, I want, I got one hand. Yes. Because definitely a philosopher, I, in the sense that I think of what philosophy should be. Right. And, but in terms of what it is, like, I'm not sure you want to be, I'm not sure anybody wants to be a philosopher. So, um, uh, so yes, definitely, uh, for sure. I would say, say, yes, I'm because, um, I would say that one way to think about where the book ends, which might extend to the book as a whole. And you tell me if this isn't, this isn't cool, Biko, but Fred Moen talks about an anacrusis, which is a, comes from the Greek word that means like a pushing back. And actually like it's anacrusis is often like when ships, when you'd put that first push, when they push a ship off a dock and then it would go. But also used in poems, is the first unaccented syllable before the poem began. A uh, different way to think about it, this is how Moton thinks about it, is like it's the upbeat that sets up a downbeat. And so I think of this book as something like that. Like, here's an upbeat. If you want to come to, on your own downbeat, go however you want with that. And Pico and I are both writing sequels of, of a sort, I think. And he just mentioned that he's doing this darn truth. And I'm doing a book on John Brown. And these are, so it, you're, I think you were, I think about this earlier before we uh, started recording was, well, what about the contemporary scene? What about today? And in a strange way, we're, both, we're actually going back, <laughs> back to the 19th century. Um, something funky is going on there. Something productive is going on there that we keep thinking with. And kind of taking up this book as that upbeat for our next, next downbeat. Uh, and then the, perhaps the most interesting thing here, uh, like broadly is that since truth and Brown lived parallel lives until Brown's execution and they circulated in abolitionist circles. And although we can't definitively say they spent time together, we're really certain, really confident they did. And we can show some some evidence for that, uh, likely, make it likely. And so we're going to write something together again in our separate sequels that will appear the same chapter in both of our books. And again, I think this might be the first time that's ever been done. And who knows? That's not really what the important part. The important part is thinking these two figures, Truth and Brown, together and trying to imagine what they might have meant to each other and what they might have said to each other, how they might have thought together, fought together, since they were also religious, worshiped together, prayed together, shared those spaces together. So that's their next, that's what, that's the next downbeat for, for us. Love that. And it also makes me think, uh, Biko, you're up in, uh, up, upstate New York, and it makes me think you're not far from Arbor. Uh, think about Southern, you know, where she spent, well, almost the majority of her life, really. Um, so I think one of the wildest things someone ever said was like, 
Harry Tubman was alive when Ronald Reagan was born. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure, like it, it's it they they if it's not the exact like time frame, it's the same decade. Which, if you really think about it, like if you really think about it, that's that is that is just. It's wild. It's also, I think this is also, you. <laughs> it, to think about the overlap between someone like Tubman and Reagan, I, I think is also to, to recognize, and this is something that, I, that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to push against <clears throat> as I train graduate students, it is also to recognize that going further back is not, is not actually a problem right for like for like black studies and critical theory so to think about the fact that tubman is overlapping with reagan's birth who this man who engineers the disruption of black communities in profound ways via the war on drugs that's not you know that that's that's crucial and then also to think about folks like sojourner truth and john brown in a contemporary movement where abolition is is back on the scene in a very verbal, very vocal way, right? So how do we how do we how do we learn from these figures in the past, um, in order to think about our contemporary moment? And I think I think the move for me, I, I wrote another book. Uh, I it ended up being published exactly the same, like a what three weeks at the between, literally, yeah. Not exactly. Yeah. So I suggest I just say this to say. We these two books come out and then and then Ryan and I keep talking and Ryan's like I'm thinking about doing something on John Brown and I'm saying to myself he's got to have met Sojourner Truth at some point in time and we still haven't found the evidence but we're you know we're somewhat um, I won't say certain but I'm I'm leaning into that possibility in large part because of the things that Ryan literally just said they're both incredibly religious people they're both they're both itinerants in different ways they're moving around all the time. They're both moving around in Ohio at times. They're you know, so so. I say this to say, um, and we want to ask questions, philosophical questions, theoretical questions, historical questions about the possibilities for thinking with these two figures as a follow up um, to this. And and you know there'll be this middle piece where both of us write something together, and it'll be that'll be the one co-authored like chapter in these two monographs. Um, so I'm just repeating Ryan, what Ryan said, but yeah, that's what we're trying to, I think, I think the move backward is also a way of thinking forward is what I'm trying to say here. And and I love that because in, in reality, what it does is it also answers what would have been my last question about what thinkers do you think would, then you could apply the phenomenology of black spirit uh, to kind of think about more contemporary figures, not to say obviously that Angel Davis is still with us, not an ancestor, but someone who's, um, uh, a bit who is a younger figure you know uh, as well um but as as you said maybe instead of thinking about it that way looking at different figures along the timelines as well and so I, i'm th this is and i told y'all this before the 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 interview officially started and we just stopped it started the clock rather but this is the kind of book that i'm gonna have to sit with uh, for a little more like sometimes i'm like you know i i like damn like some some oh, cause, I got to go back in my thesaurus. I need to check my dictionary because I got to make sure. But I think um, I think it was uh, Dr. Fair Jasmine Griffin's newest book or whatever. Reading, I think it was uh, the, the title is Read Until You Understand or something to that effect. And I've been sitting with that a lot. 
Um, haven't read the book, but just think about the title and I've heard her heard her talk about the book before. And I think maybe it was her uh, she was interviewed on the New Books and African American Studies podcast by another uh uh host, but if I remember correctly, she said like maybe her father or another figure in her life said, Read until you understand. And that really stuck with me because I'm like, this is the kind of book that I'm like and, and this and, and when I say that, that to me is a compliment. I heard Amani Perry say you gotta like like readers have to be invested too. They they uh, writers can't give you everything. You gotta there's work that you gotta do as well um as, as part of a process um and a conversation. Um and so with that being said, I'm I'm really appreciative uh of this book. We can go on and literally talk for hours. Uh because I got I got I got plenty more questions. Lord knows I got plenty more. But with that being said, y'all, I've had the amazing opportunity to chat with doctors uh, Biko Mandela Gray and Ryan J. Johnson, not Jones, but Johnson. And so uh, these brothers, uh, Brother Mandela Gray is an associate, not assistant, like the book said, associate, uh, professor of religion at Syracuse University. And congratulations to you. Thank you know, we're, we're, you know, ringing off the all, all the alarm bells here. Um, like we're on Drew Champs or something. And so, uh, and then we also got Dr. Ryan J. Johnson, who is also an associate professor of philosophy at Elon University in North Carolina. And now y'all know why Tommy J. Curry said this book is one that you got to read. And my phenomenology of black spirit is a commendable, and I say commendable again, my emphasis, uh, effort towards establishing a groundwork for the study of black spirit as a revelation of time and civilization. And until next time, y'all, I am your host of New Books in African-American Studies, Adam McNeil. Looking forward to the next time we can chat. And that also goes to y'all. Looking forward to interviewing y'all for these next books about John Brown and also uh, Sojourner Truth. So Brothers Johnson and, and uh, Mandela Gray, excited to talk to y'all again. Until next time, New Books in African-American Studies, folks. I'm your host, Adam McNeil, again, over and out.